0: You're listening to the Through the Bible Studio Series with Pastor Nate Holdridge. Join us as we continue our study through the New Testament book of 1 Thessalonians. Here's Nate. Well, 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 really gives us a great glimpse into how far the gospel permeates into a person's life and spirit and soul and body. In other words, what we see in First Thessalonians chapter 4 and really beyond is the work of the message of the gospel, the redemption that's found in Christ, the atonement because of the cross. We find the work of the gospel going deeper and deeper and deeper inside the heart of a man or a woman who truly loves the Lord. And this is the message of the Bible. You see, man had lost his image at the fall and God has been busy through the sending of his son to restore the image that was lost in the garden of Eden. And the possibility of that image being restored is only made available through the cross of Christ. But it's more than just a mere position. It's more than just mere standing before God or the forgiveness of sin positionally, it's the redemption of who man is. It's the permeating of everything that he is, so that he can grow and gain victory and strength and grace from God. And so 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, these first 11 verses especially, give us a chance to discover just how far the gospel goes in a person's life. And I don't think it's any surprise to us to discover that the first area that God goes after in this sanctification section in First Thessalonians is the area of sexual immorality, how a human being treats their body. And so, you know, in one sense, you could say it like this. The gospel permeates every fiber of our life. And so we've got to allow it to get all the way in there. And I've just found over time in, in my pastoral ministry here on earth, my pastoral sojourn, so to speak, I've just found over time that this is an area that many Christians treat as absolutely off limits to God, the gospel, and the church. The truth and the reality is that in the mind and the heart of God, far from being off-limits to God, it is in fact one of the first things that God aggressively goes after. He wants us to experience freedom, sanctification, uh, redemption in the area of our sexual lives. And so we're going to discover that here in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. But first we have just sort of a turning statement in the epistle. You remember here in the first three chapters, Paul has been reminiscing, so to speak, about the glory of the Thessalonian church, how they began when Paul had gone with Silas and Timothy to establish the church there in Thessalonica. He remembered the persecution that he experienced, that Silas and Timothy experienced with him and that the church experienced right alongside of them and that the church to experience, even after Paul had fled all the way down to Athens. And now as he writes from Corinth, he understands that that persecution is still present in Thessalonica. And so he encourages them and he speaks to them. But yet he is so glad because Timothy has reported to him that the Thessalonian church has stayed strong in the Lord. And so from that standpoint of encouragement, Paul's heart being encouraged and desiring to go to be a blessing to the Thessalonians, Paul did the next best thing. Instead of being able to go personally, he decided to write this particular epistle. And and in fact, I say it's the next best thing from Paul's personal ministry face to face. But the reality is, I think this was probably the best course imaginable because the Thessalonians would have a written record of what Paul desired from them, that they could study, that they could spend time actively meditating upon. But not only them, us. Now, thousands of years later, we study this wonderful epistle. And so, what a wonderful little sidebar concerning the things that we so often think are best. Paul thought it best to go and see them face to face, but God knew that it would be best for him to conduct his follow-up ministry through epistle, through letter, so that generation after generation in the church would be blessed. But as I said, these first three chapters concerned with the reminiscing section, but then in verse 1 of chapter 4, he says, Finally, then, brothers. So there's a turn here, a statement indicating a turning point in this letter. He says, Finally, then, brothers, We ask and urge you in the Lord Jesus that as you receive from us how you ought to walk and to please God, just as you are doing, that you do so more and more, for you know what instructions we gave you through the Lord Jesus. This is interesting. Paul just simply says to them, brothers, we're going to do some asking And we are going to do some urging. These are the two words that Paul uses in verse 1. We ask and we urge. And, you know, from my vantage point at least, we live in a world that is so in need of scriptural asking and urging. And And I suppose the thing that I'm speaking of specifically is just the reality that we live in a culture that is in need of such direction and guidance. I think in a lot of ways we're very similar to the Thessalonians. I mean, think of it like this. When people initially responded to the gospel there in Jerusalem, they were Jews. They were coming from a culture or a set of morals that was, you know, in a lot of ways, very similar to the Christian ideal or Christian morals. I mean, a great honor of family, an honor of marriage a belief in God, a rejection of cursing God, a real belief in conducting yourself with sexual integrity. And these were values that they had already held. And so they gave their lives to Christ. And of course, the gospel permeated into their hearts and changed them and transformed them. But then you get the gospel out into regions like Thessalonica, like Athens, like Corinth, like Ephesus, like the region of Galatia, like the city of Philippi. And you get into these specific cities, many of the people in the church, Gentile, coming from a pagan background. and You can only imagine how badly people needed to be urged and exhorted. They needed to be instructed and taught. And I see that same kind of thing happening, at least in the culture that I live in in America. Just the reality that, you know, I don't know, maybe... 50, 60, 70 years ago, there wasn't as much of an urgency for the moralistic training that the new covenant, that the gospel, that the new Testament provides. But in the day and age we're living in, if you come to Christ and you're a young person, you need the word of God to wash you and train you because more than likely you do not possess these values at all. And so Paul said, I'm about to ask and I'm about to urge, I hope that you're ready for it. And he says, this is what I want you to do, that you would do these things more and more. It Just speaks of a simple progress. And this is one of the key phrases in the book of first Thessalonians, more and more. Then in verse three, he says, for this is the will of God. This is the will of God. You see this laid out, and and we would all pause for a moment and say, I just want to know what the will of God is. I want to know what He desires for my life. I I want to know what He's passionate for. And Paul answers that question by saying, This is the will of God, your sanctification. Now, that's a $5 word if I've ever heard one. But that idea of sanctification is... In the Old Testament, it merely meant to be set apart for God. In the New Testament, then, Paul takes this word, and it it begins to indicate now a process of personal growth and holiness being realized in a person's life. It does not speak to perfection. It does not speak to a mere counteraction to sinful tendencies. It speaks of a progress of growth and purification. We're justified in Christ. One day we will be glorified in his presence in heaven. But here on earth, we're in a process of sanctification. Now, here's the question that we would have to ask. Who in the world does sanctifying in a Christian's life? Who is responsible for sanctification? Well, in one sense, the answer to who does it is simply that God does it. Jesus said in John 15, verse 4, Abide in me, and I in you, as the branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you, unless you abide in me. In other words, where does the real fruit come from? Well, it comes from the Lord, our relationship with Him. Paul would close out this particular letter, First Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 23, with this, Now may the God of peace Himself sanctify you completely. He who calls you is faithful. He will surely do it. In one sense, it is God who sanctifies. But in another sense, we are involved in the sanctification process. We come to Him in in prayer and in the Word and with decisions and in our friendships and in our habits. We lay down our lives before the Lord. Ultimately, we all recognize that He has done it. But there is a moment Where we lay our lives before him. It says in Philippians chapter two, verse 12 through 13, he says, therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. In other words, we bring ourselves to God and God does the work of sanctification. And so this is the will of God, Paul writes to the Thessalonians, your sanctification. And now he's going to spend really the rest of this book detailing areas of sanctification for the Christian. And the first area that he points out, as I've already mentioned, is that verse three, that you abstain from sexual immorality. And the Thessalonians lived in a culture that was incredibly sexually immoral. Immoral. They had it all. They had fornication, adultery, homosexuality, pedophilia, uh, pornography, other erotic perversions. They had it all. Do not think for a moment that we are living in a world that is much more sexually advanced or sexually perverse than the days that the Thessalonians lived in. They were up against an incredibly sexually immoral culture. And we are experiencing that kind of culture more and more in the world that we live in. The idea that basically there are heinous activities that should not be tolerated, but sex is just simply a biological function, so live and let live. We should be controlled by urges and not morals. We should be allowed to do anything as long as it's consensual. We see a rise of... Casual sex and friends with benefits. You have to test your sexual compatibility before you're allowed to be married. And to be sexually fulfilled seems to be of the highest scientific order in a person's life, a person's needs. That is just a natural thing to behave this way sexually. But here in God's Word, we discover that the first step in sanctification is to abstain from sexual immorality. Now the question, of course, would be, well, what is sexual immorality before we describe how to find victory in it and why we would want victory in it? The definition is simply this. I think the best definition I can find is in Hebrews chapter 13, verse 4. When the writer tells us, he says, let marriage be held in honor among all and let the marriage bed be undefiled For God will judge the sexually immoral and adulterous. In other words, any other behavior besides the marriage bed between a man and a woman is defiled behavior. It is sexual immorality. It is adulterous. But what happens inside of a marriage bed, that is pure, that is good, and that is right in the mind of God. So everything else. So rather than get into all the disgusting other things that are out there it's better just to show you what the real reality the goodness and the mind of god uh, actually is and so paul says this is the will of god your sanctification that you abstain from sexual immorality now the question that we would then ask is and the thessalonians i'm sure would ask is how how in the world can i abstain from sexual immorality it is a crazy world that i live in so how can i do it number one He says in verse 4, he says that each one of you know how to control his own body in holiness and in honor. In other words, step one to abstaining from sexual immorality is to gain control over your own body. I think the New King James Version calls this your vessel, your instrument. In other words, the body is not in charge of you, but you as a redeemed soul now have your spirit set above and on top of and in its rightful place over your body. Your body is not the captain of the ship. Your body is the ship. And you, the spiritual man, the inner man, are in charge of and responsible for the body that you possess. And so we then are to take dominion over our bodies, Paul is saying, and that each one of us would then control our own bodies in holiness and in honor. And our bodies truly are meant for the Lord. They are not meant for sexual immorality. And so step one is to learn how to control your own body. Of course, we do this in a close walk with God. Paul said in Galatians 5, verse 16, I say, walk by the Spirit and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. And so a walk with God, a close relationship with Him is crucial to learning how to control your own body. But number two, not only do you learn how to control your own body, but he says, verse 5, not in the passion of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God. In other words, Number two, we do this and gain this freedom from sexual immorality with an expectancy that we will live a life that is completely counter to the values of the culture that we live in. He says, don't expect to live in the passion of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God. I think it's important for a Christian to understand that or to expect to live a different kind of lifestyle. Not a life that is given to urges, but a life that is submitted to the Spirit of God, to the plan of God, to the heart of God. So, number two, a believer should expect to live counterculturally. But then he goes on in verse six and he says that no one transgress and wrong his brother in this matter because the lord is an avenger in all these things as we told you beforehand and solemnly warned you so lastly how can a believer gain this freedom from sexual immorality well he says there in verse 6 that no one transgress and wrong his brother in this matter in other words a perspective needs to be adopted and the perspective is very simple i as a person I'm going to begin to consider my brothers and my sisters in Christ over myself. And when I think about what sexual immorality can do directly to the person that I'm sinning with, it's not just that I'm sinning with them, it's that I'm sinning against them. I'm hurting them. I'm hurting myself. I'm hurting the body of Christ. I'm hurting generations of children and families and friendships. I am hurting so many people when I commit sexual sin and so many of those people are in the body of Christ. And because I'm thinking about that, I am making a decision now that I am not going to hurt other people through my sexual sin. And so it's a perspective. And so he says, how do you find this sexual victory? Well, learning how to control your own body expecting to live differently from the culture, and beginning to think about mankind in general and how your sexual activity hurts mankind in general. That's just an area we do not want to go. Now the why. You know, why do I want this? Why would I want to live this way? Well, he gives us a very solemn warning in verse 6. He says, Because the Lord is an avenger in all these things as we told you beforehand and solemnly warned you. In other words, God is a God of vengeance. And he's an avenger of this particular sin specifically. And you think about what sexual sin can do. It can damage a marriage. It can break a family. It can lead to divorce. It can lead to disease. It can take a person's blessing away, the ability of God to bless their lives. It can lead to a lost reward. It can lead to death. It can lead to great pain. God is an avenger of these things. But reason number two, he says, for God has not called us for impurity, but in holiness. You know, when you're thinking of reasons not to commit sexual sin, number one, you think, well, God is an avenger of that sin. But number two, you think to yourself, that is not my calling. God has called me to holiness and not to impurity. I think you need to think of the calling of God upon your life. Paul said in Ephesians 4 verse 1, I urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. This is One of the things I love about serving the Lord is that it constantly keeps your perspective on the calling that God has for your life. And when you think of your calling, you realize there are so many things that I am called to. Therefore, there are so many things that I am not called to. When you think of what God has called you to, how he wants to use your life, what he wants to do through you, it makes all the sense in the world to set aside sexual sin and immorality because of the calling of God upon your life. And Paul said, Closing this section on sexual sin. He says, therefore, whoever disregards this disregards not man, but God who gives the Holy Spirit to you. I think the last reason that we would have, the last why, why should I do this is because God has given us his spirit. And why would we drag the spirit of God into our sexual sin? And I just want to encourage you today. You can do this. You can walk with God in this area of your life. You can gain victory in this area of your life. You can abstain from sexual immorality. How do I know? I know because it's the will of God for your life. He says so in verse 3. And because it's the will of God for your life, the very power that you need is wrapped up in God's will. You remember when Jesus looked at the man in the synagogue in Capernaum, the man with the withered hand, and he looked at him and said, stretch out your hand. This man could not stretch out his hand, but because Jesus had told him to do it, the power to do it was wrapped up in the command of Christ. And here, the Lord is commanding you, abstain from sexual immorality, and the power to be able to do it is wrapped up, in the command that he's given now beyond that paul then moves on to another area of sanctification and i would like to touch on it briefly today he says in verse 9 he says now concerning brotherly love he moves on into our love and our care for one another he says you have no need for anyone to write to you for you yourselves have been taught by god to love one another for that indeed is what you are doing to all the brothers throughout Macedonia. And so he tells them right off the bat, he says, listen, I don't need to instruct you about loving one another. And he tells them that for two reasons. He says, I don't need to instruct you about loving one another because, number one, you've already been taught that. You've already been taught by God to love one another. He says, I don't need to teach you, number one, because God has already taught you. And isn't that true? You know, just like in a family. You know, I've got a little sister. She's three years younger than I am. And I love my sister to death. You know, I would go through great pain for my little sister. And really, nobody had to teach me about that. I just kind of grew up knowing that I love her. Knowing that I care for her. Knowing that I'm supposed to have this deep concern in my heart for her. Nobody had to teach me that. It's something that was natural to me. And so with Christians, nobody had to teach these Thessalonians to love one another, but God himself had directly taught the Thessalonians to care for and to love one another. But number two, they also did not need to receive Paul's teaching about loving one another, because he says in verse 10, for that indeed is what you are doing to all the brothers throughout macedonia they were putting together this collection and ministering and preaching all throughout macedonia they were practically ministering and caring for the christians all throughout that region they were already busy in loving believers but this is what paul had to say he said i don't need to teach you i don't need to instruct you about loving one another but i want to urge you to do this brothers more And more. There's that phrase again, more and more. I want to urge you. I want to exhort you towards this. I want to, you know, give you that push to loving each other more and more. And verse 11, to aspire to live quietly, to mind your own affairs and to work with your hands as we instructed you so that you may walk properly before outsiders and be dependent on no one. This is interesting to me. Paul just simply says to them, he says, listen, I want to exhort you to love one another, to encourage one another, to be a blessing to one another. And I found that this is an area in life where there's always a great deal of room for improvement. But then he tells them, I want you to live a quiet life. I want you to work with your own hands. I want you to be dependent upon no one. I think that we live in a day and an age where we could take this exhortation to heart so much more than we do. To live a quiet, silent, without objection kind of life. Restful, in a sense. And I think that God desires this for us. I I believe this. I believe that the frantic life should be avoided. That we should embrace a peaceful life. How do you do that? Paul understood that one way a peaceful life is found is by saying no. Say no to the myriad of opportunities. Focus your life. Simplify your life. I know that's the secret I've discovered. Know your calling and to just stick with that. But Paul also knew that peace would come by staying out of debt, working with your hands, and just putting your life in a good situation. Ecclesiastes 4, verse 6 says, Better is one hand of quietness than two hands full of toil and striving after wind. And I pray for you that your life would be peaceful and that your life would be quiet and that you would have rest. Surely the gospel provides this to us. Let us take it. Amen. Thank you for listening. For additional resources and teachings or to contact us, please visit us at nateholdridge.com.